0: Hello and welcome to the Lisa Congdon Sessions, a podcast for creative folks about living and working with more intention, curiosity, and joy. I'm your host, Lisa Congdon. Hello, everyone. I'm so excited to share this interview with you Today, I had an amazing conversation with my longtime friend, Grace Bonney, who is the founder of the well-known blog, Design Sponge. She is also the author of the best-selling books, In the Company of Women and Design Sponge at Home, and a new book, which we're going to talk about in this conversation called Collective Wisdom. Design Sponge is no longer an active blog, but is archived in the Library of Congress, And we're so happy about that because the blog really was a collection of so much amazing content over the 15 years that Grace edited that from the time she was like a baby, like 23 years old. She lives in New York's Hudson Valley, currently with her wife and three pets. She's gone back to school to become a therapist, and we're going to talk about that. And you can find her on Instagram and Twitter at Design Sponge. And let me tell you, Following her is a treat because she collects the most amazing TikTok videos and posts them on the weekend. Anyway, off to my conversation with Grace. Grace, it's so great to have you here with me today. What people might not know is that you and I have known each other. Gosh, I think we met like, I, I, I almost said like the 90s, but it wasn't that long ago. <laughs> it was like the blog version
1: of the 90s.
0: <laughs> totally, totally. So you're best known for being the editor of Design Sponge, which was really kind of like one of the first, if not the first design blog among many to hit the internet in 2004, was it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And initially you were a home decor blog, mm-hmm. but over the years, I think pretty quickly, you you kind of grew into the place where it was like this space where you were writing about art, design, and eventually more personal stuff um, became more of a personal blog for you. And then it kind of morphed also into a space dedicated to intersectional and inclusive conversations about design and cultural issues. And then in 2019, you closed? Yeah, after mm-hmm. 15 years. Along the way, you also wrote a couple of books. We're going to talk about your third book today. You divorced your husband, came out as a lesbian, married your now wife, Julia Tertian, who is an amazing and well-known cookbook author and chef. And most significantly, I think, especially to the people who do not know you personally, you you shut the doors of Design Sponge. And your Instagram is still active and you've transformed your your platform, you know, there to a space for celebrating the voices and work of creatives of color, which is another amazing thing that you've done. Although I have to say you're very humble about it. Talk about what it was like to kind of shutter this business of 15 years that your entire identity really at the time was probably based on or your like entire career identity anyway and what that was like and kind of why you did it. What what drew you to that decision?
1: You know, I have a different perspective on it now than I do two two and a half years ago um than when I closed it. And looking back, it I mean it had very much been in the works for years. And I think it was kind of a natural progression of like being, I think 23 when I started it and then being close to 40 when I closed it and feeling like I just was not the same person I was when I started it. And that's not a fault of me or the blog, but I think because it started as a creative project and not a business money making venture, it didn't feel right to walk away from it in a way that, I don't know, lost the original spirit of why it started. And I was very much informed by Tavi Gevinson's closing letter for Rookie, and it was a beautiful and really well-written look at what it was like to run a blog at that time. And the choices that were on the table for keeping something like that financially afloat in a way that felt at all ethical really involved like large amounts of money and sponsorship that I was not comfortable with. And I think there's a world where I could have pushed harder and kept things open, but I don't think I could have done it in a way that felt right for me. and. I think my career for the most part at Design Sponge was marked by choices or like these little pivot points where I could have made more money and I chose not to. <laughs> and I I think that was in favor of creative control. And that's not like an altruistic decision. It's just what I could live with. And that meant that our team probably made less than they could have. Although now that I'm out of the business, I realized that I think we actually paid pretty well for a site that was making much less money than other sites that were similar But it just grew to a point where the conversations I wanted to have were a bit more tied to politics and culture and just kind of like the larger dominant culture and how that affects both positive and negatively, like people who make things and who are creative. And that wasn't really a dialogue that that community at Design Sponge was really super interested in having. So I kind of pushed it as much as I could. And then that's what kind of encouraged me to go into books and magazines and podcasting because I wanted a place where I could talk about those things with more nuance. But I I think it's primarily my fault. And I don't mean that in a, like, I'm a bad person way. I just think I built a site that was very specific. And then over time, I changed and grew and I think the audience very much wanted me to stay who I was in the beginning and wanted the content to remain primarily just about the surface parts of design and you know that's that was how I built it so I understand that people didn't really love the shift so I think when it was time to close I just recognized you know I don't need to be here for these changes to happen in the industry. Like, they are happening. They're happening more slowly than I would like at certain points. But I think I had to really divorce myself from that mission. I think mission sounds a little bit saviory, but I, th- I think that was kind of what I was grappling with is a lot of like kind of white savior behavior in myself and realizing like I was hanging on because I really wanted to like make changes in the community. And I think I, it took that a little too literally. So when I left, it gave me some space and I realized like, oh, I can still be supportive of this community and just be a fan now and operate with complete transparency about everything I learned, every contact I have, every detail. Like I have shared every... Excel sheet, every financial document, like every contact I can possibly get my hands on with everybody who still works in design, because I think that's one of the biggest issues. But ultimately, I just kind of outgrew the thing that I built when I was in my 20s and felt like it was time to do something different.
0: How did you, I mean, you. we all sort of witnessed this over time. It wasn't like one day we turned on Design Sponge and all of a sudden you were writing about, you know, the creatives of color or, you know, equity in the design sphere. It happened sort of organically. And I'm curious about the transition inside of you as a human being, right? That led you to want to go from something that you started that was more surfacey, And let's face it, all design blogs in the beginning were were all surfacey, And into this space where you were talking more about politics and the impact of capitalism and all of those things like what happened inside of you that helped sort of transform your your business model
1: It was it was two things and they were a couple years apart So the first was coming out and I mean you knew about that before most people did publicly and I think that was my first moment realizing I think what it felt like to be on the outside of something even though I mean look I'm a white very privileged person in America so I don't mean to take away from any of that but it was the first moment where I realized, like, oh, I don't I don't see anybody who looks like me in the design sphere very much. I mean, frankly, I remember when Jenna Lyons came out. That was a big moment for me of, like, oh, somebody else who, like, wears bows and is, like, slightly more <laughs> feminine. I just – there wasn't a ton of representation in the same way that there is for gay men in design. Like, there's a much bigger wealth of that. And I don't know. I think I started to pay attention to representation more when it came to, like, queer communities, and that was important to me. And then as I started to pay more attention to that, I started to just in general paying attention to who else I was leaving out. And it was a conversation with Tina Shoulders, who's a designer based in New York City. And she was going to come on my podcast to talk about diversity in design. And it was a very early Grace move to just be like, let's discuss this topic. And <laughs> this will just be a woo, one and done discussion. And we went and had lunch beforehand. And she very kindly was like, I think we should talk about this before we we have this conversation. And Tina is a Black woman. She works with young children, or she did work with young children in New York City doing this amazing project called Exposure Camp. And it was to expose younger children in the city area to just a wide range of design careers they may not have been exposed to earlier at that stage of life. And we just had a conversation about, she was like, what do you mean by diversity? And what do you mean by inclusivity? And, you know, have you reckoned with your role in that? And I hadn't. And And it's not her job in any way to sit me down and tell me all this, but she very kindly and compassionately was like, let's have a talk about what your role in this looks like and how it could change rather than kind of making this a conversation that the industry has to solve. Like you need to take personal accountability. And it was a lightning rod. It It was very much like I went home a very different person. And I think by that stage, I had learned to respond to constructive criticism and feedback in a way that I had not in the earlier years years of Design Sponge. And I knew it came from a place of care and it was a great gift. And so there actually kind of was an overnight change. I'm I'm glad maybe it didn't feel like that, which was the goal. But I came home and I realized, I looked at our content and I was like our whole team, almost everybody, not everybody, but most people on our team are white almost everybody's straight. Almost everybody we write about is white and straight. Like, How can we change this? And I sat down and I made a rule immediately. And I said, the entire team for the next three months, I think it was like October, November, and December of, I can't remember which year. I said, every single piece of content needs to be written about or by. And and when I say by, I mean, we are paying those people to create content that is someone from a marginalized community or that has been marginalized by dominant society. And so- we just overnight literally switched like we canceled everything we had in the pipeline and i said team like you have to grow up with me like we've we've totally been overlooking so many different things and in the long run I don't think most people noticed immediately except for people who identified as, you know, black, brown, indigenous, queer, disabled, people who were like, hey, yeah, you've never noticed us before. And all of a sudden you seem to be noticing us. What's changed? So I had a lot of conversations with people who were very reasonably not trusting me and were like, what is this about? Why are you doing this? And I think it took a few years of doing that consistently for people to see that it wasn't just kind of a a gimmick. And I had a lot of work to do to Build trust in communities that I had frankly not done much to earn trust in. So it actually kind of happened overnight in terms of the content switch. And we stuck to that going forward, where the vast majority of our content and like a literal majority had to be by and about people from communities that have been marginalized. And I'm so proud of how that shaped our team because our team was a lot of, you know, white, straight, cis people who had the same type of exposure that I did and the same access, and we just hadn't done much with it. And now they've all gone on to become these voices at new magazines, blogs, whatever, wherever they all work now, to be voices for, you know, why this stuff should be included. And that, like, remains my, my greatest, I don't know, just, like, point of joy from Design Sponge is seeing how that team has gone on to, like, really be voices for equity and understand what that looks like in an editorial sense.
0: That's great. I I didn't even know that whole story. It's I I have also been given feedback by friends of color and and been asked hard questions and getting to that place where you can actually just take a deep breath and listen and take it in and know that it's done with love is so profound. I had actually the last interview I recorded was with Bill Strickland who is the editor in chief of Bicycling magazine and they have also gone through a very similar transition in the last year and a half and he talked about the same trajectory and the same vulnerability and also the same reaction from his audience of color like i'm going to wait to see if this is really happening or if this is just talk and you know it's been a good year and a half now where they have completely altered their content and and it really is showing that this is actually a true commitment. So, and that's really hard to do because I think people think it's going to especially in the bicycling community there there are so few black cyclists and so I mean they exist obviously, but the the sport like design has been dominated by white folks for so long. And black folks have been in particular have been left out of the conversation. And so it's been a long, slow road, but it's the commitment that matters versus like, well, we tried, but it didn't, it it didn't, you know, we couldn't find anybody to feature. So we're, we're not doing it, you know.
1: That line, that like, we tried, but we couldn't find anybody, or the the fallback on, you know, we just focus on talent, and so that's it. Yeah. You know, I, I hear that line a lot. I've said that line, so I can't have any judgment for people who are still in that place. But it's tough to see that that's still, that's still the predominant dialogue happening, including like in these, you know – very supposedly inclusive woke white feminist events that still happen everywhere that are about female empowerment and whatever and it's still either entirely unpaid panels of people talking and you know they will be like look look how diverse it is and i'm like yes if you're bringing in black brown indigenous women to talk about diversity a that's the problem like people should be talking about everything not just a certain identity point. And then also don't ask these people to speak for free. So there's still like so many levels that need to change, which is frustrating, but I understand that it took me that long to change. So I'm sure that that's kind of how long it's going to take the industry to change. But at this point, like my friend group looks a lot different than it did at the beginning of Design Sponge. And I can't help but notice that You know, this is excruciatingly painful and slow, (laughs) these changes. And I'm glad that they're starting to happen, but I, I hope that a lot of these communities can move more quickly and then just get a lot more comfortable with feedback because it's not, you know, like you were saying, it's not one change, like it's a constant change and it's a constant level of like, once you've understood things at a certain point, then you start to like open up to all the nuances that exist within different communities. And, you know, there just has to be a lot of different ways of doing things. And I hope that that's kind of where the creative community keeps pushing.
0: Yeah. Okay. So all of that happens And then you're like, okay, I'm done. (laughs) You donate everything to the Library of Congress, which is amazing because you have these incredible archives over 15 years. And then you're like, okay, what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Um, (laughs) And I know that was scary for you for a period of time because we're friends and we were chatting about it. So talk about what that was like. And we're going to talk a little bit more about this in general, this sort of idea of like being a woman who's almost 40, trying to figure out, like, maybe I haven't done the thing yet that I'm meant to do, or even that, you know, maybe that thing I did before was meaningful, but what's next for me? And, you know, is it too late to start something completely new, especially something that's like, completely unrelated in many ways to what I was doing before? And how do I let go of this sort of like, celebrity, even nature. I can imagine that that was probably welcome for you on some level. I I struggle a lot with feeling like I want to crawl in a hole half the time because I feel so exposed. But at the same time, you know, it's how I make money. So, you know, it's like this weird double-edged sword. So talk about what that was like for you, leaving the kind of face of Design Sponge and, and trying to figure out what was next for you.
1: Leaving the face of Design Sponge was a lot easier than I anticipated. I remember being in a car with one of my best friends and she was like, whoa, what's it going to feel like when nobody cares what you have to say? (laughs) I was like, ooh, that's an interesting way to phrase that. But it's true. And, you know, I think we don't talk enough about what transition times look like. And I think that I assumed that that transition would be like quick and seamless. And I knew I didn't have a plan immediately. And part of me had been holding on so that I could move seamlessly into whatever was next. And it was becoming clear that that wasn't going to happen. And I like took a number of little like breaks. I mean, like a you know, little weekend trips where I was like trying to figure out what I wanted to do, what that would look like, and nothing ever came. I was just like, I can't figure it out. So I had to accept that, okay, I have this book project to work on. That's great. But- As most of us know, like, books are not money-making ventures, especially not in the beginning, uh, at least not the way that I do books. And so I was like, okay, I have a thing to do for at least a year why don't I just give myself that year to do that? And I did, I went to Alaska by myself and that was kind of like a bucket list trip where I was like, I need to be alone outside somewhere way bigger than me to just be alone with my thoughts. And I thought I'd come home and like have all these aha moments. Nope, nothing, nothing happened. I felt just as clueless. I like definitely sunk into a depression, which is like a thing I've dealt with my whole life, but it got really intense. And you know, I had to just kind of sit in that for a long time. And I thought, like, oh, I'll get these offers that'll like flood in to do something. And that didn't happen either. And I think that was a really interesting moment for me of realizing, like, hmm like what comes next doesn't necessarily just fall in your lap. And I had very much believed that narrative of kind of like, make yourself available and the world will just like come to you, which is like, God, such a white thing to
0: think. Oh, <laughs> yes. yes.
1: <laughs> yeah. And I, so I spent a good amount of time just like reckoning with that and being kind of grossed out by myself and then being like, okay, I've got to try some things. And I'm not somebody who's good at trying things unless I think I can do them well. And I had to really be like, okay, well, what what is next for me? And I like, you know, vision board the shit out of everything. It was just like pacing stuff around. And I kept dancing around how much I enjoyed these interviews that I did with women for the books that I've done. And just, I was talking to my therapist and she was like, what is it about the interviews that you like? And I was like, oh, it's just like sitting in a room with somebody having a conversation. Like I really miss just being one-on-one with people. And what can happen in that moment that doesn't happen when you're talking to a large group of people, and she was like, "Okay, look, let's dig into that." And so we did. And over time, I kept building these vision boards where I was like, oh, "I'm very clearly building a therapy practice. Like this is very." And I, I remember being really embarrassed to like I showed my therapist my board, and she was like, "Do you want me to say it? Do you need me to say it for you?" And I was <laughs> like, "Yes, I need you to say it for me." she was like, I think you want to be a therapist. And I like burst into tears. And I was Mm like, I don't know, I'm not qualified. I'm not like worthy to do this. It's such important work. And she really helped me break down, which was, I'm glad I did kind of the idea of a therapist as like some sort of savior thing like she was like it's just a person you're just a person sitting there you will learn some extra things but like do not think of yourself as someone who is like saving people you are just going to be present to do work with them so i've really worked on like unpacking ego stuff for the past like 3 years and i'm glad i did because now that i've i'm in a graduate program for this that pops up a lot <laughs> and it's really interesting to see How little it goes checked in programs. And so I'm, you know, in class with people that I really care about, but there have been a lot of people who've kind of expressed their excitement to, like, save people. And that's a thing that I think is really important to unpack in any sort of, like, service work. So... That's kind of where I am right now. Is like I'm really enjoying my school, like loving school so so much in a way I did not anticipate. But the personal dynamics of it, and just how important it is to constantly unpack, like Saviour Syndrome, if you're going to work in a field like this, like that—that's a big part of the work that needs to be done just constantly.
0: My first experience with kind of talking about white culture and white supremacy and and white saviorism was when I was in my early 20s and I went back to school to become an elementary school teacher and I got accepted into this program specifically for people who wanted to work in inner city schools and you know we're all you know a bunch of white women there were a handful of women of color all women you know we walk into the class the first day and I think we all had this idea that, you know, we were going to save these black and brown kids and that's why we were there. And the program was run by two women, one black, one white, who just broke that down for us immediately and was such a helpful thing for me to register before I even set foot in a classroom. I don't think it really meant anything to me until, you know, I was doing the work, But I think that is what drives so many white folks, in particular women, I think, into careers like therapy or, you know, or just saviorism in general, not necessarily even saving black and brown folks. But, like, I'm going to save people and that's going to make me feel good about myself, you know, therapy, teaching, all of those things. Yeah.
1: I think we use terms like good and bad for stuff like that. And it's like, oh, I'm being a good person if I do that. And it's that's how like, you know, racism gets tricky too, where it's like, I, I can't be racist. I'm a good person. And it's like, this is just, this is behavior that's important to unpack and then dismantle and then keep doing for the rest of your life. Like, that's just kind of how it works. And I think once you kind of latch on to that. This is not something that ever ends if you're white. And if you live with some level of privilege, like you always have to just be unpacking it. So I, I really enjoy that right now. Like I really enjoy the like incredibly analytical and critical nature of the learning I'm doing right now, because the program I'm in, while it has its lots of issues, it is rooted in anti-racism. And so a lot of the conversations we constantly have are about how that pops up in our lives, how we're dismantling that, how we inevitably will bring that into a therapy room and what it looks like to take accountability without focusing your emotions. So I feel like the last 15 years of Design Sponge really prepped me for that. And those are conversations that I actually really welcome and enjoy having because I think I'm constantly excited to learn that I am wrong about something and then to like Expand the way I view something. That's just, that's a really invigorating feeling. And I think even more than like in my 20s, I feel like I'm more excited about life right now than I was in my 20s. And I thought I would be like in this winding down phase, which is just so ageist. But (laughs) I really thought like 40, I'm going to be settling in, like retiring in 20 years. What can I get real cushy in? And now I'm like, oh, no, no, no. Like I want to constantly be learning. And part of the reason I picked this job was because there are continuing education requirements every single year. And I was like, this is my jam. I have to learn more every year. This is great. Like, this is going to be awesome. And so I, I'm i very excited about what the next few years will look like.
0: Well, you're sort of leading me into my next question, which, which was, what did you learn about yourself in your 30s that, you know, like learn about what makes you happy or what makes you want to get out of bed in the morning and then what doesn't? Hmm.
1: I mean, I mostly learned what I was not good at. (laughs) Like, I'm terrible at setting boundaries. I'm getting better at that. I was really good at respecting other people's boundaries, but I couldn't set them myself, which is just a nightmare and also not like a great friend. So I'm learning to be better at that. But I think what I, like the single thread I took with me from my 30s was just that I think the thing I like the most about myself is my curiosity. And there's a part of me that has just never stopped being like, I don't know, like a seven-year-old who's just kind of like really into like how things work and taking them apart and putting them back together. And I think that curiosity has served me really well at Design Sponge. And I think it's serving me well at this stage of my life because, you know, I'm curious about everything from like the bugs in our backyard to like how huge systems of oppression work and you know, how to help people kind of dismantle them and what that looks like. So I think that's really what my thirties taught me. And then also taught me like how incredibly codependent I am on just other people's approval. And that's been something that I'm really working hard on, but man, that stuff is sticky. It really, it's so sticky. I think, especially if you're someone who has been conditioned as like a woman in this culture, like I, I still to this day, I'm like surprised to uncover how many layers of myself that I am changing or suppressing because i think it will make something easier for somebody else and so i'm really trying to unpack that because i don't think i can be helpful to anybody else who's trying to do that work if i haven't done it myself so that's like messy work and it's required new therapists in my life but yeah <laughs> but you know that's that's what this this feels like right now i feel like every decade on the decade i've had some sort of like chemical shift in me where i feel like ooh some version of myself has emerged that I have to like get to know and then appreciate and then ultimately love. But that's like a process.
0: Yeah. It's so interesting. You, you and I met when you were probably 24, 25, and I was like 39 or 40. And now you're the age that I was when we met. And I similarly like had an entirely different career path. You know, I changed careers at the same around the same age as you, you know, d- doing something completely different, taking some risks and leaving something else behind, but ultimately like finding the thing that I think I'm meant to do. Um not that I haven't changed and learned along the way. And I love this idea of kind of generations of yourself, like learning continually. And like, I just in the last few years have figured some stuff out, actually some stuff you're figuring out now. (laughs) So it's, you know, it's so interesting to watch other, to watch your friends like grow and change. And it's, I don't know, it's just really inspiring. And I'm, I'm one of those people who I don't think when I was in my 20s or 30s, I thought of myself as somebody who wanted to continue evolving. I think that I thought I was going to arrive at some point at a place where I had it all figured out. And it was literally just in the last five or six years that I figured out that that was absolutely not true, but that that wasn't a bad thing, right? And so I want to use that sentiment as a a lead in for talking about your, your new book, called Collective Wisdom. And I want you to tell us a little bit about the book, sort of what it is and how you conceived of it. And like, what made you say, this is the book I need to make?
1: Mm -hmm. So I think the way publishing works is like, if you have a book that does well, people want you to do chapter two or volume two of that book. And the last book that I wrote in the company of women did really well. And immediately people are like, okay, what's next? When's the next volume? When's that? And I was like, I don't see the point in doing a second volume unless it's quite different because I could just fill books with awesome women all day. Like that's not an effort for me. Like that's that's the world I've immersed myself in. I could just pull names off a shelf constantly. And that's what Design Sponge was. That's what our Instagram platform. Like all of those things exist for me to constantly just try to like celebrate people that I think are awesome. And I that's like just comes naturally to me. I love it. But you know there's always feedback with projects like that like nothing is ever immune from you know knowing you could have done something better and one of the pieces of feedback i got from in the company was people saying like i love that you had some women who were a little bit older but like what about women in their 80s and 90s and 70s and women who don't work in art and design and so i started to think about like well, what would that look like and i originally thought i was going to do a book of just women in stem and then i started realizing like That's great. And there are women in STEM in this book, but I was like, I really want to kind of expand that in a way that feels authentic to me because I just, I don't have a lot of contacts and math and science and fields like that. And that took a lot of effort to really include in this book and it, and it is, and I'm glad that that's there. But In the process of thinking about this book, I lost a friend named Georgine who was in her 90s and I met Georgine volunteering and I'm looking at a picture of her hanging up on the wall above me. Mm. We met volunteering and we cooked together in a kitchen for years along with my wife Julia and we just thought Georgine was the coolest person ever and she had lived such a life and done so much on her own and raised all these kids by herself on nothing and I just thought she was awesome and she didn't stop having really strong opinions about things and being curious about what was going on in the world and politics. And and the, I would say like the last two years of her life, I spent a lot of time with her and her mobility was becoming more limited and she was, you know, getting ill a lot. And so I spent a lot more time with her at her house with her cat and her pets and refilling her bird feeders and just getting to know her. And I there was like this kind of indistinguishable moment where our friendship switched from people who knew each other from volunteering to like an actual friendship and it just kind of happened overnight and that was probably the last year of her life and when she died it just had a profound impact on me and I realized that I really missed having older women in my life and I don't have a lot of that in my family left and so I thought about like I want to read a book full of Georgines. Like I really want to listen to people who aren't super famous, who, yes, there will always be those types of people and projects I do, but I wanted to celebrate people who just had lived lives that were extraordinary for being as long as they were. And then I also wanted to celebrate friendships like ours. So when I put this book together, I imagined it as a mix of profiles of like fascinating women between the ages of 50 and I think the oldest woman is Carmen Herrera, who's 106 at the time of her interview for this book, to just talk about the good and the bad of life and the complicated and the gray areas, and then also to share stories of women who have really meaningful intergenerational friendships, whether those are professional or personal or something in between. And those interviews to me became my favorite part because we got to have really complicated discussions about how ageism affects friendship and how... We really kind of flatten our expectations of older women and imagine that they couldn't have interest in being friends with somebody who's much younger. And those were things I just really wanted to dispel and then hopefully provide some like blueprints of how you search out those friendships because I think they're so important. And the perspective I gained from being with Georgine and I think the perspective she gained from being with me you, you cannot put a price on that. It is the most important thing. And I'm still friendly with Georgine's family and her daughter is always like, you know, my mom talked about you guys all the time. And that means so much to me because it felt real. Like that realness is something I'm like very hungry for these days.
0: Mm -hmm. You call the women in the book elders. Mm -hmm. So talk about why that term means something different to you than just calling the women in the book, older women. Like what's the difference?
1: Ooh, that was a dialogue. <laughs> that, was a, that was a lot of conversation with the publisher of, I mean, you know, there's no community of people that you can group for any identity factor who are like a monolith. And so when I talked to a lot of women initially, and when I was interviewing, I started with a lot of the, the oldest women for kind of clear reasons. And I was like, I want to get these conversations recorded as quickly as possible because a lot of people were ill and dealing with physical limitations were like, Time was just very precious. And so when I was asking them, like, what terms do you prefer and what feels comfortable with you? So many people were like, oh, my God, please don't say old. Don't, don't call us old. And then people were like, don't call us wise. And so, like, this, that title went out the window originally. Um, but then I started interviewing more and more women who were from indigenous communities, women who were black, women who were just from communities that have a very different relationship to age. And just the concept of time in general. And that really changed my point of view because a lot of those were women who were like, oh, I wear the term elder as a badge of pride. Like that is something I have earned that I am lucky to have, that I have because of the support of my community. And so I can tell you without a doubt, there's like not everybody in the book is okay with the term elder. Not everybody in the book is okay with the term older or wise or any of those things. But there is no term that makes everybody happy. So. You know, anytime you do a project like this, there's always a few people who are unhappy with something that I've done, (laughs) but that's a term that means a lot to me. And I think about it a lot, and particularly in the queer community of like how valuable and how meaningful and how lucky we are to even have elders. And so I don't know. I think it's something I kind of aspire to in a sense now. And I hope that it's a term that will not offend anybody too greatly, but I think it's one that our culture in America, we could learn a lot from because I think the dominant white culture in America has some very big problems with age.
0: And implied in the word elder, I think more than older, is that you do have kind of wisdom and you've lived a life and you have valuable things to share. And it means something different in that way. Yeah.
1: And it's also not the only thing that anybody who's an elder in a community has to offer. I think that's something I really wanted to dispel with the stories of intergenerational friendship was that, you know, if we continue to only see older people or elders or people just with more life experience as just kind of like a a present waiting to be unboxed and then you can just take all the wisdom from them and that's all it is. Like it cannot be a one-way situation and people who are in their 80s don't have all of the answers to everything. They only have the answers to how they've done things in their life. And so that's why I want to talk to so many different people because there's no one way to get to do anything in life and everybody, especially the older you get and the longer you've lived, you just pass a whole lot more turns. Like, and there's so many more chances to just take very, very different, I don't know, roads in life. And so I wanted to show how different all of those can be, because I think we're so often sold this lie about like the path to success and the path to happiness is, you know, you do X and you do Y, then you do Z in a certain time frame. And I don't even mean like heteronormative stuff. I don't mean like getting married, having kids. I just mean like certain life skills and achievements and things you'll have, like, that's just a very boring way to look at time and i think that you know people can have 10 11 careers or you can have no careers and you can just exist in the world and find enjoyment and pleasure in yourself and your community and that is equally valid and so i tried to show as many versions of that as possible in in this book
0: i was interviewing ayumi hori a few years ago for a project i was working on and one of the things she said to me which actually really got me thinking was that she really seeks out the friendship of younger artists because she feels like she learns so much from them about, quite frankly, like politics, social justice. She wants to understand how the world is evolving in a way, and that that really informs her work and her perspective. And that she's very intentional about that and that she values it very much. And it's like we can be mentors to each other, right, and learn from each other. And I wondered, you know, you you got interested in intergenerational friendships because of your friendship with Georgine. What did you, I mean, aside from everything you just said, like, was there any kind of particular nugget that you learned about intergenerational friendships that really stuck with you?
1: Yeah. I think that I I try not to focus on the younger people in this equation, but this really resonated with me because I am on the younger end of the spectrum in these conversations in the book was that I think so many of the people who were younger in those friendships, they spent a lot of time with imposter syndrome of like, why would this person want to be friends with me? I don't have anything to add. And that having that thing to add so often gets like, generalized in this way or like stereotype is like, oh, I'm going to like help them with computers and technology. It's like, no, that's not what, I mean, sure, that's great. Help people with that if that's what they want. But so much of it was just about like, if you don't think of someone in their 80s as just like settled and sitting and not doing anything, but someone who's also very interested in learning and doing something new and seeing new places and trying new things, then everything is open and on the table. And There's an amazing story about two sorority sisters in the book who are AKAs um, in D.C., and they do all sorts of stuff together. They go get brunches. They go out with her much younger friends. They try new foods. They, like, went to a club together. And, you know— age doesn't mean those things aren't on the table and so i think it doesn't have to be that that relationship is something where you just like sit at their feet and listen to all the things they've learned over their years like those moments are wonderful but i think if you have something in common some sort of shared interest even if it's just like the community where you live that's kind of all that matters so i feel myself dancing around the cliche of like age is just a number but there is a part of that that is true. And I think younger people are taught to revere elders in a way that makes them slightly unreal. And I think older people are very much real people with their own foibles, their own problematic nature. Like all of these things don't go away as you get older. So I think there are a lot of examples in the book of people who talk about how meaningful it has been to have younger people in their lives, whether that's like somebody they work with or a niece or a nephew or somebody who just... Embraces that they are just another human being who has interests and curiosities like everybody else.
0: Was there a woman in the book that you interviewed that left a huge impression on you? I'm sure there are, are probably many, but is there an example of somebody who you talked to who you were just like, whoa?
1: Yeah, there's two that always stand out. Well, there's three, but there's a there's couple that really like, I got off the phone or I ended the Zoom call and just like cried because those moments touched me in a way I didn't anticipate. And one of those was talking with Betty Reed Soskin, who is a beloved national park ranger at the Rosie the Riveter Park. But the thing that moved me about our conversation was nothing to do with any of her achievements related to being a National Park Ranger or, like, meeting President Obama or any of that. Like, she was with her daughter during the interview, and her daughter kept saying, like, Mom, don't you want to talk about that? Like, isn't that, like, the moment you remember the most? And she was like, no. I remember, like, the most important thing to me was she got to sing on stage one time with the symphony that she, like, grew up going to see – and her daughter was like, "Come on, like you got honored by President Obama," and she was like, "Oh yeah, that's that was that was great, but like that's not really what stuck with me." And she talked about how many different versions of her life she met, and how many different Bettys there were, and several of the interviews that really touched on how you live with and include previous versions of yourself in your contemporary version of yourself. That's really what stuck with me, and it may just be because of where I am in my life right now. But Betty touched on that. Abir and Huda, who are a mother and daughter pair in Chicago, talked about that. And so did Mab, who's one of my favorite people in the world. And she's uh, an Iranian activist who lives in the U.S. now and makes all sorts of amazing feminist content and also cooks. And she talked very much about this visualization of, like, imagining herself sitting at a table with all the different versions of herself throughout her life. And, And for her, those were all dramatically different versions of herself And she talked about, like, I want to make peace with them and consult with them, and I'm never alone. And she was like, sometimes when I'm in a kitchen cooking and I smell things, I feel like I'm crying, and I'm not crying out of sadness. I'm crying out of, like, memories from different generations that are coming through in those moments, and I don't have at all the dramatic life experience that she has had, but I very much understand trying to make peace with earlier versions of yourself that maybe you didn't feel so proud of, or you felt a little ashamed of, and you, or you didn't understand. You just wanted to get out of that phase of your life. Like imagining inviting them all to dinner all the time and constantly like being present with all of those different versions. Like it gave me a sense of peace that I hadn't anticipated because I very much have tried to distance myself from versions of myself in the past that I'm not happy with. And I think bringing them into the room and like having grace for those old versions of grace <laughs> Um, and to just really be like, yeah, you do the best you can at certain times with what you have and to be appreciate where you are now and you have to bring in those old selves. So that really stuck with me because I, I just think our culture really encourages people to like outgrow something and leave it behind. And I really think like no, 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 like keep a piece of it with you to remember how far you've come and to remember like the version of you that appreciated things then that are really important.
0: That kind of sent chills down my spine as well. I can, I can really, that really resonated for me. I think we carry around so much shame about past versions of ourselves or sadness for what past versions experienced. And that's something that you carry with you, like literally Mm -hmm. like in your DNA Mm -hmm. and if you don't release it or befriend it, it will haunt you. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's that. I love that. I'm going to read that interview. I also wanted to say that I interviewed Betty for my book, A Glorious Freedom, and I actually also interviewed her on stage during my book tour. And she is such a phenomenal human being.
1: And also phenomenally normal. Yes. And I think that like, so often in these books and stories, we do kind of like platform stories in a way that is important because women's stories are very often not platformed the way they should be and not appreciated the way they should be. But it's also just, if you live to be 80 or 90, like there's resilience in your story, there is adaptation, there is creative living, like all of those things happen. If you are old enough, if you are lucky enough to make it to those ages, like everyone's story has something in it that is amazing. And that can just be like what it takes to Be a woman living through decades of culture that does not allow you to be a full human being or an equal human being in any way. And so I think that's the really amazing thing about talking to people who have lived that long is that they don't have to do amazing things by like, you know, capitalist culture's standards to be someone that is inspiring and someone that you just want to know more about. Like living to be 100 requires a level of creativity and adaptation that is amazing.
0: Yeah. I love that idea of you don't have to be remarkable to be remarkable, you know, or it's another thing that is really resonating for me. And, you know, Betty and so many other older women who are remarkable are these, these kind of people you sort of want to just be around. There's a certain energy that they have. That's really inc- just, I don't know. I sort of want to soak it up. I'm, I'm constantly myself. I'm actually at full disclosure. I'm interviewed in the book. I think probably one of the younger people Mm -hmm. actually. And I'm very honored, but I also, even as a a woman in her fifties is like constantly looking for role models or people who are older than I am, who have been through things to befriend or to like have as style icons or, you know, just like, you know, I'm super athletic and like, who are the 60, 70 year old women who are like riding their bike in a way that I want to be riding my bike when I'm 60 or 70. And I've never I've always sort of like, you know, looked for role models in people who were either my age or younger, even. And I've really just started to reverse that. and it feels really, really powerful. What are you, Grace Bonnie, and this is the last question I have for you. What are you most looking forward to as you get older? Like you've been sort of you dove into this this, you know, researching this book and interviewing these women. I'm sure it's, in some ways, shifted things for you, or maybe it hasn't. Like, what what's ahead for you? What are you looking forward to?
1: I don't know if it's anything specific, so much as a feeling. Mm. And I think I would very much like to make peace with the parts of me that don't allow me to be fully myself because of what I worry somebody else will do in reaction to that. And. I think a part of that, and I'm sure you can identify with, has to do with someone who is queer and being someone who's queer and how buried that can be and how much shame that can be. And every time I think I've unpacked all of my shame, I find a whole new store of that <laughs> that I have to unpack. And, you know, I'm doing that right now with like gender in this way that I think only, you know, pandemic TikTok could have influenced where everyone is like, wait, is this how I identify? And so I'm in that place now. And, I, I look forward to a day where I can just be like, yeah, maybe I have some labels for myself that make sense. Maybe I don't, but I just want to be at peace with it. And I feel like my life is a whole bunch of question marks right now. And for the first time, I'm not afraid of that. And that's a big deal for me because I think I saw question marks as a sign of like the wrong direction. Like I saw a question mark as a like wrong way sign. Like if you don't, if something feels not entirely settled, that means you've done something wrong or it's a failure. And I actually think feeling those questions and trying to figure out those questions, even if they're very messy and not being afraid to dive in is such a sign of growth and strength. And that's the type of strength I'm trying to cultivate these days. So I look forward to maybe one day feeling slightly more settled about who I am and how people react to that. But I think that's a long, a long process.
0: Collective Wisdom, Lessons, Inspiration, and Advice from Women Over 50, edited by Grace Bonney, comes out on October. November. November. (laughs) Sorry, we're already in November. (laughs) November 9th. That's where my brain is. November 9th. (laughs) Amazing. And wherever books are sold, I will link to it in my show notes and also link to Grace's Instagram, where, by the way, if you follow Grace, you will be thrilled by her weekly TikTok collections. They are a highlight of my week. I feel like if this therapy thing doesn't work out for you, you could literally run an Instagram or blog of like the best of TikTok.
1: That would be a dream job. I'm obsessed with TikTok. It's so fun.
0: Yeah, same. And I've found the most amazing folks to follow through Grace and dogs and all of it. So anyway, thank you, Grace. It was so great talking to you today. Thanks, Lisa. It's always good to talk to you. I hope you've enjoyed this episode editing of this podcast by the amazing gabe garber thanks to nick lambert for the original music and to my amazing team at the coloop podcast network please subscribe to the lisa congdon sessions on apple podcasts and if you enjoy what you hear leave me a review you can follow me on social media at lisa congdon and at the lisa congdon sessions i hope you'll join me for future episodes have a magical day everyone